Well, what a story. And one of the reasons why we highlight that is because the gospel knows no ethnic boundaries. It transgresses boundaries. It is for all people. Well, we also think it's important that we highlight this during a month like uh, February, which is Black History Month. And I know some of you may be wondering, why do we stop and celebrate that? Well, there's multiple reasons for that. One is we have a gospel greed to not just reach part of our mission field, but to reach all of the triangle with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want this to be a welcoming place that welcomes people from all walks of life. And we want to celebrate the fullness of the Imago Dei, the image of God in people. Not idolize it, but we do want to celebrate it. Another reason why we do this is because I shared this illustration with you last year. Um, about two years ago, our family for Thanksgiving ventured out to Arizona, where my wife is from, and uh, we celebrated Thanksgiving with her side of the family. While we were there, my wife decided to take uh, me and our boys on a six-hour tour of her old stomping grounds. My boys were like, shoot me now. Um, and so we saw stuff that just didn't relate directly to us, and uh, one of my sons especially had a bad attitude, so we just kind of had to stop, and I needed to frame that moment, and I needed to let him know, yeah, I know you don't kind of relate directly uh, to the elementary school your mom went to or the apartment complex she was raised in as a little girl, but mama is family, and because she's family, what matters to her and her story should matter to us. I'm not even going to put that in a Christian box. I think that's just called being a good human being. When we got saved, we didn't just become a child of God. We were dropped into the family of God, and we've got all kinds of siblings. And what matters to them should matter to us. That's why we celebrate it. If you've got your Bibles, thank you very much. If you've got your Bibles... I want you to meet me in 2 Timothy, and boy, last, last Sunday, Pastor Curtis preached the paint off the walls. Uh, I was listening to his message working out in the gym, and I was kind of doing this and trying to do a curl at the same time. Absolutely unbelievable. We're looking at the book of 2 Timothy, we're in chapter 2 this week, because as we have been emphasizing discipleship all of this year... 2 Timothy doesn't so much give us a didactic picture of discipleship as much as it does a real-time kind of film on what discipleship looks like. It is the discipleship relationship between Paul, the discipler, and Timothy, his young son in the faith, his disciple. Pick me up in verse 1. I'll just read a couple verses to us. Paul writes to Timothy, you then my child... When he says, my child, they don't share any physical DNA, but spiritual DNA. He says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, here's the key word, entrust to faithful men. We'll be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in, this, in civilian pursuits. Instead, his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray, and off we go. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in our church Thank you that your gospel is going forward 
Thank you for the co-laborers. You have allowed us to lock arms with people like Pastor Charles and Excellence, Lord God, and a host of so many others. Now, Lord God, I do pray. My, my aim today, Lord God, is to not guilt anybody. My aim is to paint a compelling picture of the truth of your word and your eternal invitation to all of us who are followers of you to join in the mission of making disciples. I pray that you would give me simplicity, not shallowness. Simplicity in painting the picture, that it would, it would compel and woo us. God, that you would jolt us out of a cultural Christianity that is fine with stuffing our heads with knowledge, but it never works its way down to our hands and our feet. Speak, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and assume that you don't know the name Ann Scheiber. Why would you? Anne was a nondescript woman who worked in the early to middle part of the 20th century for the, for the internal, started to call it the eternal revenue service, for the internal revenue service. Praise God, we'll be delivered from that one day. <laughs> she didn't make a whole lot of money in her life. She lived in a very nondescript New York apartment. She wasn't one for possessions. If you saw her walking down the street, nothing about her stood out. In fact, after she retired from the IRS, she pretty much lived the life of a recluse, sequestered there in her apartment until she died at the age of 101. So how in the world did Ann Scheiber end up in the New York Times book of obituaries? When she retired from the IRS, she had a life savings of about $5,000. Anne was fascinated in the stock market and received some mentoring, some coaching, and, and investing in stocks. And meticulously, she just lived simply and went about the business of investing. At the time of her death, she had multiplied that $5,000 into $22 million. When she died, her lawyer called Yeshiva University, a school she had never gone to, and said, Yeshiva, I'm calling you on behalf of my client, Ann Scheiber. She has bequeathed her estate of $22 million to your school. But she's done so for some very specific reasons. You see, Ann was herself a Jew. And as a Jewish woman in the early to mid part of the 20th century, she knew what it was like to have doors of opportunity closed in her face. So she's left this $22 million to a school she's never been to to fund young Jewish women so that they can get an affordable education. She's been dead since the 90s. But even today in 2024, her life reverberates beyond the grave. Because she took what she had, invested wisely, and multiplied it. Today I want to talk to you about multiplication. No, relax, I'm not going to talk to you about multiplying money. I want to talk to you about something far greater. Multiplying your life. 
It's what the scriptures referred to as discipleship. The journey of discipleship, it begins when, when you and I became followers of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not kind of the end line. It is the starting line of our journey with Jesus. I don't know how it happened for you, but there came a moment in our lives when we were confronted with the reality that we had racked up a, a debt with God that we had no hope of paying off, no amount of church attendance, no amount of uh, consecutive quiet times, no amount of giving, no amount of being a, a good person could pay off the debt. But praise God, Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. That our debt has been canceled. By grace, we respond to what he did on a hill called Calvary when that great hound of heaven invaded our lives. But that's just the beginning. All that we do from this point on, it's, it's not about trying to pay off a thank you. It is a response in gratitude. Jesus gets to this when he says, if you've been around church, you've heard this, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The idea of making disciples, again, the idea here is it is to produce a reproducing follower of Jesus Christ. When you got saved, it's um, sort of like um, uh, an infant having just um, been pushed out into the world. Someone needs to come alongside of it, give it essential nutrients. That's what happens to us when, when we got saved. What was supposed to have happened is people come alongside of us, pour into us so that we can grow to maturity, so we can come along someone else and bring them to maturity so they can come along someone else. In other words, discipleship in mathematical terms is not about addition. It is about multiplication. And I think one of the grand problems with the church of Jesus Christ in America is we have become so fixated on addition that that we have neglected the call to multiplication. I'm not pitting the two against each other. Praise God, we are adding services and campuses. I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But multiplication, discipleship is not, it's not something we pay other people to do. It's something we have been invited into to be about the business of producing, reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. This is the heartbeat of 2 Timothy. I think the pulse of 2 Timothy is actually what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where he personalizes the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and he thrusts it into the lap of Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you not see the multiplication happening in this text? Paul lays out four generations of disciples. He says, what you've heard from me. So there's him, and then there's Timothy. Timothy is to take from Paul, first generation, Timothy, second generation, and entrust, we'll unpack that here in just a few moments, to faithful men 
Obviously, that would include women. We might say faithful people, third generation, who will be able to teach others also fourth generation. Discipleship is a rippling effect. My aim this morning is not to guilt you. The older I get, I was telling a a young group of seminary students the other day, I was talking to them about preaching, and I said, the older I get, I, I, I want to be simple, not shallow. Today is just a simple word that I think if we lay hold of it, will revolutionize our lives. I'm not here to guilt you. Guilt, it'll never change the fundamental structures of our hearts. I want to inspire you by the grace of God. Because if the gospel has, has genuinely gotten to you, it will leak out through you to others through this medium of discipleship. Here's the thought. Life's Biggest satisfactions are not tied to the what, but to the who. Your greatest satisfactions in life are not so much tied to your work or to what, but it's to who. You talk to any 60-something, 70-something, 80-something-year-old person and you ask them about their regrets, I promise you their regrets all center around relationships. Who? And not what? This is important. And I want to be careful here because I, I know it tends towards consumerism, but I think one of the most compelling cases I could make for disciple-making outside of the fact that Jesus invites us into it is that if you ignore the opportunity to be all in on producing, reproducing followers of Jesus Christ, you are at the same time neglecting an opportunity to find rich meaning in your life. I have some bad news and good news when we talk about disciple making. The bad news is I have a buddy of mine named Kenan Vaughn. He leads a wonderful discipleship ministry called Downline in Memphis, Tennessee. And he did his doctoral dissertation on disciple making in the church. And, and sadly, he realized through his research that only 2% of Christians have actually made a disciple. Now, here's the good news. I don't think any of you will leave our messages on disciple making and say, not going to do it. I think there's something in all of us who are genuinely saved, who longs to be in. I think the reason why so many Christians don't do it is they don't know how. Well, you've come to the right place. 2 Timothy chapter 2 gives us a framework as to how exactly to make a disciple. I ain't got nothing deep. I'm just going to give you the framework 
and it's the acronym RIDE. R-I-D-E. In order to get at this, let's step back a moment and get our bearings for where we are. In Acts chapter 14, Paul walks into Lystra. It's Timothy's hometown. He walks into Lystra and uh, preaches the good news of Jesus Christ. He confronts people on their sin. They don't like it. A mob ensues and they stone him. Scholar Ray Vanderlyn says that when a person was stoned in antiquity, more times than not, they were pushed off of an elevated place at least 30 feet high where the fall enough was, uh, was enough to kill you. Paul miraculously survives, and then people come alongside, and they start to stone him, and again, he miraculously survives. Two chapters later, Acts 16, he's, this joker is back in town. Now, I love you, Summit family, but you got one time to stone me. (laughs) If I survive, I ain't coming back. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. I'm out. Not Paul. Two chapters later, he's back. And in Acts 16, he meets a young man in the faith. His name is Timothy. Pastor Curtis shared with us last week as he walked us through chapter 1 that here is Timothy, and Paul makes mention of his godly grandmother and his godly mother, but absent from the list is a godly dad. I think Paul is sensing the deep sociological void in Timothy's life and a part of his call for Timothy to apprentice to him as he apprentices to Jesus is to not only address the spiritual needs in Timothy's life, but the profound sociological needs in his life. Oh, if I had more time to actually preach this the way that I feel it right now, I would tell you that if Christians would just get a vision and get serious about disciple making, not only would it grow people up in Christ, but it would put a sincere dent in the fatherlessness in our society. We don't need to outsource that to other groups. We have everything we need right in the house of God to meet what ails our community. So he comes and he apprentices himself to Paul, if you know anything about Timothy, Timothy is not a courageous person. He has a delicate disposition. Paul alludes to this in chapter 1 when he says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I just want to call you up right now. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love, self-control. We can piece together that Timothy dealt with waves of anxiety, which is why Paul would tell Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. It's not a naturally courageous person. But I find it interesting. You know how Timothy dies? According to church history, this one given to a delicate disposition actually dies by challenging a pagan mob who had come to Ephesus for their annual festival. He challenges them with the truth of God's word and they stomp him to death. I think maybe one of Timothy's last thoughts was Paul sitting in his own jail cell about to be beheaded by Nero. And that called him to step up. Here's what I'm trying to say. What transformed him wasn't a sermon. What transformed him was discipleship. 
Here's what I know. The most meaningful thing I've ever experienced in my life is a group of men who have just walked in me and have poured the life of Christ in me. I want to call your attention to these men. First is my dad. Put that picture up of my dad. We, we have the same exact birthday. Last Sunday was our birthday. You're welcome. You can cash at me, zell me, however the Lord leads you. I will receive. So this joker calls me up and says, I got us tickets to go see uh, Duke play at Cameron Indoor Arena on uh, Monday. And I asked him, does God like devils? <laughs> Dad was my first Old Testament professor, my first New Testament professor. From the time I was in kindergarten, we had a standing appointment every single week at the local Shoney's or McDonald's. And he would just lay open the scriptures for me. He was a Camps Crusade for Christ guy. And if you know anything about Camps Crusade for Christ, they had this thing called the Four Spiritual Laws. And so I can still see the napkins. Dad would write out the Four Spiritual Laws and uh, he'd show me. He was my first evangelism coach. And then, and then he would like put the fear of God in me and says, okay, we're gonna share our faith. Really? And he'd say, I want you to watch me do it. And I'd watch him share his faith with the waitress. And then the next week, here I'm six, seven years old. I'm going to watch you do it. (laughs) By the time I was 16, my passport was stamped. It was filled with all these countries. I'd been to 10 countries in Africa. I'd been around the world because dad wanted me to get a vision for the nations. He didn't outsource that to the youth pastor. In my early 20s, there's another guy who came into my life guy named Pastor Tony. You can put his picture up. Pastor Tony called me up and said, I want to spend some time with you. So I flew to Dallas, 22 years old. I said, what are we going to do? He says, I I just want us to flow. Just want us to spend time. So here I am, 22 years old, man. I'm playing pickup games of one-on-one basketball with Tony Evans in his driveway. He had a big ping pong table right there in the office. And he'd say, Loritz, let's play. Middle of the day, he'd tuck his tie into his shirt and we're playing ping pong. And at nights, I'm at the dinner table with him, watching him open up the scriptures to his family. I'm on planes with him. And I'm watching him just kind of model Christ. Poured into me, shaped me, molded me. There were times we'd knock off early and say, Loritz, let's catch a movie. And we'd go catch a movie. And at the end of the movie, he asked me, now, what'd you learn about the gospel, Loritz? He says, I need you to think illustratively. Last guy who shaped me, you can put him up. That's Bishop Almer talking to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, This is about circa 1993. I like that picture. Do you just see me soaking it in? It was just a sponge. I lived at his house. 
I, I remember sitting in his home office. I can still see him now sitting at his desk, books scattered all around. He's preparing for Sunday sermon. And you know, I'm just this inquisitive kid asking me his take on cessationism and tongues and all this other stuff. And how do you put it? I don't know how he put messages together around me because I'm just learning and soaking in deeply. I called him on the way here on Thursday night. The old man is 76. I said, Bishop, I'm just checking in on you. How you doing, man? He started bawling his eyes out. And he kept saying to me, you've done good, son. You've done good. Listen, I, I just want to tell you, if I've been of any encouragement to your life at all, yeah, seminaries kind of helped a little bit. But really, what you're getting from me is Crawford Loritz and Tony Evans and Kenneth Homer. I've just had men come alongside of me and pour into me. Took the Great Commission, not as the Great Suggestion. but who've produced reproducing followers of Jesus. Gosh, I've got 14 minutes and 26 seconds. All right, we gotta go. How do I do this? Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Here's the key word, entrust, 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 entrust. Uh, Paul's writing in the original language of Greek. The original language of Greek is um, paratithemi. Paratithemi, paratithemi. Tithemi means to put. Para means near or alongside. It's proximity, it's closeness. First thing I want you to understand about discipleship, and here's where we get messed up. When Paul uses the word entrust, he's calling Timothy to relational proximity with other people. His point is this, the greenhouse for discipleship is not a classroom, it is relationship. And I think that's what trips us up because, because we wanna choreograph everything and we wanna program everything when at the end of the day, the greenhouse, and again, forgive me, this is embarrassingly simplistic. It is relationship, and here is where we are confronted with what I believe to be the primary number one reason why we don't do it, and it is because we are just too stinking busy. One of the guys who discipled me I was a young leader and I was complaining about how busy I was. He says, Brian, bring your calendar. I brought his calendar. I brought my calendar. He looked through it and he just started to laugh. He goes, your calendar is typical. I says, what do you mean by that? He says, here's your problem. Your calendar is task driven, not priority driven.
This idea of producing, reproducing followers of Jesus Christ, if it is really a priority, it should be reflected in my calendar. Let me just kind of, let me just kind of give you some hope because some of you parents are like, man, you just don't know my schedule and all that. Start with your kids. Start with your kids. See, here's the idea. If the Great Commission is not going to be the great suggestion, that it is going to require us to have priority-driven calendars where the priority of disciple-making is evident. I remember asking Bishop Ulmer. I'm, I'm, I'm 22 years old. I'm in Atlanta. He says, I need you to come out here with me. And I'm asking him a whole bunch of questions. What, what am I going to do? What's going on? He says, look, man, just come out here. We're just going to do life. All right, but, but is doing life going to pay my rent? Yeah, I got you. That's what discipleship is. We're doing life. Secondly, discipleship is relational But secondly, it's inspirational. Just look again at the words Paul uses to inspire Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer. Look at the images. He calls Timothy a soldier, an athlete, a hardworking farmer. All three of these images are occupations in which they are dependent upon something bigger than and outside of themselves. Talked to my son yesterday. My oldest son called me, and he's a military police officer in the Army, and he just is doing all these exercises, and he goes, I think I might get deployed. He's not sure. He's not freaking out about it, but, but what he's admitting is my life is not my own. It's not my own. Today I'm in America, tomorrow who knows where I'll be. I don't call the shots. And in a weird way, that's what Paul's telling Timothy. (laughs) Following Christ, this is our posture, open-handed. Our lives are not our own. You've been called into something bigger than us. What we call around here, putting your yes on the table. It is our posture. Timothy, I want to call you up. And then, man, later on, he's going to tell him, share in sufferings with me, Timothy. Not for a moment do I want you to be embarrassed about me sitting in jail. Yeah, I didn't sign up for this. And I wish I could tell you when you live with an open posture that, 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 that you won't end up in jail. You may end up in jail. But you didn't sign up for comfort and happiness. That's why no athlete in the Olympic Games, when they win, when they get the gold medal <laughs> and they stand on that, on that top step, they never ask the athlete, hey, what kind of music do you want the band to play? You want to listen to a little Drake? They don't get asked that question. Why? Because it's already been decided for them. That national anthem is going to get played because it's not about your personal preference. You're a part of something bigger. I shared this illustration with the men, but... Sammy Davis Jr., when he was on his deathbed dying of throat cancer, the guy he discipled, the guy he mentored was a guy by the name of Gregory Hines. Gregory Hines 
comes in, here's Sammy Davis Jr., the guy who had marked his life as dying of throat cancer. Sammy can't talk. Gregory Hines bends down and just kisses him on the cheek, thanks him for his investment right as he's about to leave his home. True story. Right as he's about to walk out the door, Sammy Davis Jr. gets up. Here's Gregory Hines. He hears rustling behind him. It is his mentor, the guy who poured into his life. What is Sammy doing with throat cancer? He's tap dancing. At the end of his tap dance, he goes... Gosh, I get goosebumps. Sammy would die two weeks later, and in essence, he's saying, everything I've, I've had, I'm pouring it into you. You take the ball and advance it down the field. That's why when the guy who discipled me, bawling his eyes out, man, said, you did good, son. Thirdly, Discipleship, it's relational, it's inspirational. But if I stopped right here, I'd make it this kind of cushy thing. It's a subjective thing. But this is where discipleship is rooted. It is thirdly, doctrinal. Verse eight, he says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Now, how's Timothy gonna remember Jesus Christ? He wasn't handpicked by Jesus. I'm guessing he wasn't around Jesus. How would you remember Jesus Christ unless you heard Paul's teaching, which was rooted in the person of Christ? Verse 14, he says, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Here it is, rightly handling the word of truth. I've got a buddy of mine, H.P. Charles. He does this annual preaching conference called Cutting It Straight. It comes from the idea of rightly handling. It's cut it straight. Don't veer off. Don't compromise. You are anchored in the word of God. It's objective. It's fixed. This is what we stand on. Unfortunately, you and I live in a society where the word of truth is being replaced with my truth. I'm spending an awful lot of money on a car service to take me back and forth from the airport, not because I'm trying to be bougie, but because this guy I've been sharing the gospel with, man, I, he just needs to go ahead and say yes to Jesus because he's all up in my bank account. <laughs> and the hangup is the person of Jesus. He would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He's a prophet. He's just not God. And then he says to me, and I know you say he's God, but man, that's your truth, and this is my truth. And I'm like, we're saying two completely different things. Like if you get pulled over by the cop for going 65 and a 25, and she pulls up next to you to write you the ticket, try saying to her, can I share with you my truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. We anchor people not in books about the book. We anchor them in the book, the word of God. How do I make a disciple? It's relationship. How do I make a disciple? I want to live in such a way that I'm inspiring you. 
How do I make, make a disciple? I'm drawing you to the word of God. Finally, discipleship is, it's expressed. I, I, I want to encourage you, when I make a disciple, to not just be informed about who Christ is, but to live it out. It's exactly what Paul is doing as we round third and head for home. Verse 22, he says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Here, here, here are the action words here. I want you to flee some things. I want you to pursue some things like righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord, I think every pastor should, this is what keeps me out of trouble most days on social media. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents in, with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Timothy, live it out, live it out, live it out, live it out. I think one of the problems with the body of Christ is we have way too many travel agents and not enough tour guides. You know the difference? No offense, travel agents. I'm using it metaphorically. A travel agent will book your tickets, will book your resort stay, will, will send you to a destination they will never go to themselves. A tour guide comes alongside of you for the journey. <laughs> Discipleship is not having a bunch of travel agents who point you in the direction. <laughs> They're tour guides. Come along with you. So my dad and I were talking the other night, sitting there at dinner. Something else watching your parents age. My dad has preached to over five million people in his lifetime. I said, Dad, tell me the most meaningful ministry experience you've ever had. Just like that, he answers. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 5.30 a.m., eight men around a table. Hold on a second, Dad. You were like a part of the original Promise Keeper main stage crew. I was there, Dad, 80,000 people. He says, give me eight hungry men at 5.30 in the morning, over 80,000 in an arena any day. Last picture. These are my pallbearers. D discipleship is something, man. Because you get to a point in your life where you've had people who've poured into you and you realize, I owe a debt. 
Like I had folk open doors for me and give me opportunities and invest in me when I didn't deserve it. I got to figure out, pass this on. All but one of these men came from fatherless homes. Guy in the blue shirt, his dad's been locked up since he was two years old. His only vision of his dad was behind a plexiglass thing at the correctional facility. Most of them lived with me. The guy on the front, white t-shirt, Dad's never been a part of his life. Him and his wife and his five kids called me on Sunday, wished me happy birthday. He's pastoring a multi-ethnic church in Chicago. Is running a group called the Chicago Partnership where his church is influencing tens of thousands of people in Chicago. All of them are married, but one, None of them are divorced. They are literally changing generational curses. All praise to God, but I like to believe I had three-year windows with those guys. I love you, Summit. What is there, 15, 1,600 people in this room and then across all of our campuses? That's my greatest joy. So what are we gonna do when God calls us home? We're gonna stand in his presence and say, here's my Bible studies. You got some pallbearers? You've got some people you've poured into. So Father, we bless you. We thank you for salvation. Salvation is not a finish line, it's a starting line. Being apprentices to Christ, taking the life of Christ poured into us, passing it on to others. Yeah, God, I, I want to be in the backyard showing my kids how to shoot a jump shot, but God forgive me if I mentor them more in athletics than in the things of Christ. Thank you for the growth and expansion of Summit. Yes and amen. But as we're adding, I pray that even more so we would be multiplying. And that's not a paid staff position. It's what it means to follow you. Find us faithful in the journey. In Jesus' name, amen.